If you want to take your Bibles out, we're going to be in an Old Testament book today, 2 Kings chapter 5. And let me pray for us before we uh, dive in. Father God, thank you for the uh, Word of God that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Because it's not just a story, it's not just a historical account. Um, It is the very words of God your revelation, not just so that we would accumulate more and more information, but so that we'd be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. We realize, though, that we can read the Word and be unaffected by it. We realize that we can listen to preaching, be unaffected by it, um, or simply think that this is for somebody else, not for me. And I pray against that this morning. I pray against that in my heart and the people that are here, uh, that, that we'd hear you speaking to us. And I pray against the enemy who wants to convince us that this topic of greed really doesn't have anything to do with us. That's about other people that make more money than us. That's about other people who uh, live differently than we do. Uh, I, I pray for a great openness to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God to hear what it is you have to say to us. Lord, we are a blessed people in this land. We have so, so, so much. And I pray for the ability to distinguish between enjoying the gift and exploiting the gift. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started a short series last week. We're going to be going on five Sundays talking about greed. And... um, one of the things that I think is a challenge, I, I, I think because we have so many people around us that live like us or similarly to us, that we kind of all reinforce the conviction that um, we have all of this. Maybe in some cases we think this is, this is um, God's blessing for something we've done, been, or, or um, who we are, um, and, and kind of stop there. Think, okay, what responsibilities go along with this. We are a very wealthy country. Do you know that in the United States of America, and we're about, what, 326 million people now, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 13, 14 million millionaires. So about 5% of the population qualifies as, as millionaires in our country. We're, we're just pretty well off here in America. And I tend to subscribe to what John Wesley used to say, earn all you can, save all you can, give away all you can. I think that's a great mantra to live by. But I do think that um, because we enjoy what, what we have, that it, it's hard for us to really wrestle with. Are there areas that God wants to address regarding um, the finances in our, in our lives, the things that we enjoy? And as I said last week, um, Jesus has been uniformly, you read through the Gospels, he is uniformly uh, concern when he brings up the topic of, of money. Now, to, last Sunday and today are kind of about doing some self-assessment. And um, I, next Sunday, the following three Sundays, we're going to talk about where do we go from here. But I, I want you, again, to think, what does God want to say to me in these couple of weeks? Uh, um, the, the fact that I have X amount of dollars, the fact that I have X... Uh, a number of things um, that I enjoy in my home or my bank account and so forth, um, it's it not wrong in and of itself. 
And, and I want to argue that, that you could be sitting right next to somebody this morning who has exactly the same amount of money as you, exactly the same number of things as you. And one of you can be, have areas of greed in your life and the other not. So it's not really dependent on how much we have, how much we don't have, but really our thinking about it, our attitude toward it. Back to what Jesus had to say about money. Let me give you just four examples of how he kind of comes across negatively about it. Bank treasures, he says to people, bank treasures in a secure heaven instead of an insecure earth. Remember he talked about the stuff that we buy in this earth prone to destruction from moths, rust, thieves. Secondly, you can either serve God or money, but you can't serve both. Third, this one is the one that always has troubled me. Because by virtue of living in America, most of us qualify as rich people. A camel is more likely to fit through a needle's eye than a rich man to enter into heaven or a rich woman. And then last, we looked at this last Sunday in Luke chapter 12, be on your guard against every kind of greed. A number of things uh, in that. One, it appears that there are varieties of greed. I'm going to talk about some of the specifics later on today. And number two, Jesus seems to be concerned that this is something, uh, this is a danger that um, to any one of us all the time, so we have to always be uh, on guard. Now, I want to say something about the gospel before we move on. When we talk about sin issues, and and the Bible regards this as a sin, the greed is a sin issue. When we talk about sin issues, one of the things that we have to uh, reinforce, and I don't always do a good job of this, is that there is one thing by which you can be saved. There is one person by which you can be saved. Um, Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is no other name given uh, under heaven uh, among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross and died there, um, he died so that you might have the opportunity to be born again. And he didn't die uh, as part of the formula and say, okay, I'm going to take care of three quarters of your problem. And you have, to, you have to fill the rest out by your just living, your righteous living. One, one, one way by which we must be saved. And that's Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. You don't add one thing to it. I don't add one thing to it. Man, we need to hear that message again and again, don't we? Because it's so easy to think about, I do this or I don't do this, and then God applauds me or he's upset with me. Uh, We are righteous by virtue of what Christ has done for us. Got that? So everything else we talk about, now now, I want to make a little qualification to that. There's a place in 1 Corinthians where greed is listed among some other sins. And, and Paul says, and these people will not enter the kingdom of God. And so we don't want to be naive and say that things like greed can't keep us out of heaven. Well, what happens, what Paul's talking about there, there are a whole lot of sins that we embrace, that we love, that we cling to, that whether we make a profession of faith or not, the, rea- the proof is in our love for a different God. And so th- it's possible that greed keeps you out of heaven in the sense that you love, gre- you love money and stuff, most of all, 
And you may have prayed a prayer when you were four years old or when you were 10 years old. But the proof of the pudding, uh, the proof of, the, uh, of that prayer's authenticity or lack of authenticity is what kind of person are, are, are you? Are you seeking to please God? Are you seeking to please self? Now, I've thoroughly confused you. See me afterward to unsort it for you. All right. Gospel of Jesus Christ is all that saves. All right. What does it mean to be greedy? This is one of the fundamental challenges of talking about greed. It's hard to come upon a solid, non-squishy definition of greed. As I said last week, the fundamental uh, meaning of <clears throat> greed in the biblical, ter- biblical terms that are used is covetousness. I want what other people have. Now, not in the sense, uh, uh, well, the scriptures speak about covetousness in terms of I want to steal what they have. But it, we can be covetous simply because we want what they ha- we want something like what they have, and the fundamental definition is the desire to have more, the desire to have more, and my guess is that every one of us here would say, I, even now, I desire to have more. So where do we get to where it's a problem, and where don't we get to that it's a problem? I think one of the challenges for us, again, and as Americans, is we're um, looking at people that make more money than us and saying they're the greedy folks. The head of Priceline uh, companies, Priceline.com and other companies, Jeffrey Boyd, earns $52 million a year. How many of you could be, live on $52 million a year? Would you be able to do that? Yeah, I think we could. There's 15,500 employees in the company. My guess is that Jeffrey Boyd makes a lot more than anybody else in that company. But is he the only greedy one? If he is greedy. What about the, what about the employee that makes $40,000 a year or maybe $60,000? Because they make so much less, does that mean that they're immune from the uh, prospect of greed? No. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the attitude. It's a matter of what is controlling us and what's driving us. I'm going to read an example of a, of a greedy man this morning in 2 Kings 5. And what I want you to see is that this guy appears to be, from all, from all that we have in Scripture, a guy that loved the Lord. And then he went off the rails for a moment, appears to be for a moment. The guy's name is Gehazi, and he was the servant of Elisha the prophet. And he probably was a prophet in waiting himself, part of the group of prophets that's spoken about early Second Kings, meaning that uh, there was kind of the chief prophet, Elijah first, and then Elisha. And he worked with these men. He taught, taught these men. He actually helped provide for their physical needs. Um, and so Gehazi was probably drawn from that group of prophets in waiting that he's going to be... And my guess is that Elisha picked him because he showed great promise. He was a good guy, loved the Lord. And we see him faithfully serving. We see him in chapter 4, faithfully serving uh, his, his master, maybe knowing things that even Elisha didn't know. Faithful guy. And then in chapter 5, we, we hear about a... a a commander of a neighboring country by the name of Naaman. Now, Naaman is, is uh, like kind of the number one military guy in the country of Am, uh, Aram, but he has leprosy. 
and his wife has a Jewish slave that Aramean raiders had taken from the border country who says to his, uh, who says to his wife, I-, I wish my master would go to Israel because there's a prophet there who would heal him. And so the word gets passed along to Naaman, and he heads off with the blessing of his king to Israel, not to see the prophet, but to see the king. Because in pagan countries, you assume the king was the closest to the gods because he was the king. So certainly he was the most loved by the gods. So he goes to the Samaritan king and uh, brings all kinds of presents with him and, and a letter of introduction from the king of Aram and says, heal my servant Naaman. And the king's all bent out of shape. <clears throat> He's like, was he, why is he coming to me to heal him? Does he think I'm God? And Elisha gets word of this, and he says, well, send the guy to me. And so Naaman comes to Elisha's house. Now, he upset right off the bat. Naaman was not happy. Elisha doesn't come out to meet him. He sends a servant out to meet him. He doesn't wave his hand over him and say, be healed. He gives him instruction to go down to the Jordan River and dip in the river seven times, and you'll be clean. And Naaman was livid. First of all, that Elisha didn't show up. Second of all, that he sent him to such a a scummy river like the Jordan. I guess the Jordan, kind of messy like uh, back then like it is today. The headwaters are crystal clear up in the north of Israel, but as it flows down through Israel, they get really uh, ugly, muddy, nasty looking. And he's like, if I have to dip in a river, at least send me back to Damascus where we've got clean rivers. And the men in his entourage were, um, spoke some, uh, some wisdom to him, said, look, if he asked you something hard to do when you've done it, yeah, well, this is easy. Why not go try it? So he goes to the Jordan, he dips in the Jordan River, comes out, lo and behold, his skin is fresh and clean. All the leprosy is gone. So now he goes back to Elisha and he wants to pay him. And that's where we drop in at verse 20. Uh, well, actually, let's start. <clears throat> let's start earlier in verse 15. Then Naaman, uh, this is not on the screen, so just listen. Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, <clears throat> and Naaman said, Now I know that there's no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take a gift, Elisha refused. Now we're going to go down to verse 20. Now what he had brought along with him to pay for his healing, should he get one, was 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 suits of clothing. Uh, you, You should know that prior to this, there's famine in the land. And so, and, and Elisha is a, is a prophet. He didn't get paid. He didn't make his living that way. It appears that it was pretty tough going in Samaria in those days. Not a lot of food to be had. So my guess is that Elisha doesn't have a lot of stuff, doesn't have a lot of possessions. And he could have used these things, especially when he's responsible for these other young prophets and their families. But he turns them all down. Verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master should not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any of his gifts. As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him and get something from him. And so Gehazi set off after Naaman. 
When Naaman saw Gehazi running after him, he climbed down from his chariot and went to meet him. Is everything all right? Naaman asked. Yes, Gehazi said. But my master has sent me to tell you that two young prophets from the hill country of Ephraim have just arrived. He would like 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing to give to him, to them. Now, at first look, let me just stop there. At first look, this doesn't sound like greed, does it? It may have been that Gehazi, in fact, I'm assuming that Gehazi knew what Naaman had with him. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 suits of clothing. He doesn't ask for any gold. He only asks for 10% of the silver, and he only asks for 20% of the clothing. And here's a what if. What if Gehazi was not looking for these items just for himself, but thought these really could benefit our prophets? We don't know that. We know he lied to Naaman. He's going to lie to Elisha in a minute. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have some good ulterior motive in his heart. Verse 23, by all means, take as, uh, twice as much silver. So now he's going to take home 150 pounds of silver. Naaman insisted. He gave him two sets of clothing, tied up the money in two bags, and sent two of his servants to carry the gifts for Gehazi. But when they arrived at the citadel, Gehazi took the gifts from the servants and sent the men back. And then he went and hid the gifts inside the house. When he went into his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? I haven't been anywhere, he said. But Elisha asked him, Don't you realize that I was there in spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and cattle, and male and female servants. I don't know, at that point, I think if I were Gehazi, I'm going, good grief, aren't you going a little crazy on this? I didn't take any olive groves. I didn't have any, he wasn't giving me any sheep or goats or manservants or maids. All I got is a little silver and some clothing. Because you have done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. When Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. Overreaction. I mean, doesn't it feel like that? Overreaction. What in the world, Elisha? This, this man went and got a, a few gifts, a few things, not that big of a deal. And besides, maybe he is going to give it to the other prophets. Maybe he didn't mean to keep it for himself. In fact, it's interesting, Elisha doesn't say anything to him about greed specifically. He simply asks, is this a time to receive gifts? As a backstory, you should think about what kind of message Elisha wanted to convey to Naaman when he healed him. The gift of God carries with it no price. The gift of God carries with it no price. It's interesting. As you look um, in chapter 8, we're going to see Gehazi again. He's now in the court of the king. And the king is asking him to review some of Elisha's greatest miracles. So it would seem that he still, um, he still, even after this incident, was kept on as Elisha's 
servant, as his aide-de-camp. He's an important man in Elisha's ministry. Good before this incident, good, reliable guy, good, reliable guy after this incident. But money, stuff, I want it. It's calling my name. I think possibly this is a moment of weakness. I don't know what to think regarding whether or not he was going to keep it for himself or was going to pass it along. I'm guessing he was going to keep it for himself. Again, it doesn't look like he asked for all that much. I think we would think about a friend that would do something like this and say, really, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal to us because I don't think we fully grasp Jesus' legitimate concern about how dangerous money and stuff is. It's not automatically wrong. You remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy? The love of money is the root of all evil. The love, not the money itself. The love of it, though, root of all evil. How easily it becomes insidious. It draws our hearts away to another God. And I think as you and I try to wrestle with the question, are, are there, is there an area of greed in my life? How easy it is for us in America to justify it with things like, hey, look, I, I have what I have because I took advantage of good opportunities that, were, that God presented me with. I built a business. I, um, I worked hard. I am enjoying the fruits of my labors. Um, I invested wisely. I'm, I'm generous with my money. I, I give a lot away which I do believe is the number one hedge against greed. We'll talk about that in two weeks. But we can kind of use these, these um, rationalizations to keep God at arm's length so that we can't really hear him saying what he's trying to say, not to the person that lives down the street or not to the person that's on the other side of the church auditorium, but what he's trying to say to me. Because no matter what your income, no matter what you have or don't have, no matter how many outstanding bills you have or how flush you are with money, if you think you are immune to greed, the devil has already won with you. You're an easy mark. Because we won't be on guard. Let me give you a number of signs that money and stuff might be my treasure. Remember we talked about this last week? Two key ways to reveal whether or not greed has a, a measure of control in our lives. is One, is my money or my possessions treasure? Have they become my treasure rather than Christ? And number two, have they become my security rather than Christ? Is it what I bank on to survive tomorrow? Is it what I bank on to make sure I have enough for my family and take care of my needs? Is it what I bank on to make sure I have enough for the future? 
Now, it's one thing to put a retirement fund away. It's one thing to put a um, college fund away. It's one thing to save up money, but are we banking on that ultimately or are we banking on Jesus? Let me give you seven signs that money or things might be our treasure, our security. First one, fighting over an estate. Have you ever watched somebody you know and love fight with their brothers and sisters over mom and dad's estate? I mean, this is what the conversation started as that we passage we looked at last week. Remember, Jesus was he was there teaching, and a man said to him, "Would you make sure that my brother splits the estate with me?" To which Jesus replied, "Who made me judge over you in these matters? Oh, and by the way, watch out! You think you have a legitimate claim to the state estate? Watch out!" Be on guard against every form of greed. That was addressed at this young man. It blows my mind as I watch Christians fight with relatives over an estate. And I think of that line, Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, when he's talking about lawsuits against Christian, other Christians. Why not rather be wrong, he said. Why not rather be wrong? Boy, that flies in the face of American sense of justice, doesn't it? Kidding me? Be wrong? I'm not going to be wrong. Take you to court. I think that's one possible sign that money and stuff are treasure, security, fighting over an estate. Secondly, significant individual or consumer debt. Significant individual or consumer debt. What am I talking about? Not your mortgage, but car payments, all the credit card debts that are piling up. As we said last week, average household in America that's carrying a balance beyond 30 days on a credit card has got almost $16,000 in credit card debt. And almost half of the people interviewed with that admitted they got that way because they bought things they really didn't need. And, it, I mean... Isn't it true? Especially now that, that it's so easy to pull out my wallet, pull out that cart. You know, and the balance potentials have gone from, you know, $5,000 on your card to you can, you can have a card with a credit line of $100,000. People putting down payments on houses and buying cars with new cars with that. Living, is this too harsh? Living beyond my means? How easy it is to look at the people that live next door to us that we go to work with and say, I should be able to have what you have. I should be able to enjoy what you enjoy. I don't quite have the money for it, whether I'm not managing my money properly or I just don't make as much as that person does. But we feel... the. Isn't it true we feel entitled to be able to live like other people around us the exact same way that they do? Isn't that a mindset that's endemic in our culture? 
But make no mistake about it, whether it's on the credit card, consumer debt like that, or, or even living paycheck to paycheck. And we're living beyond our means. And say, wait a minute, I don't really do a lot of, I don't do a lot of what they do. Back when we, I was uh, my first year as a pastor, we were just making nothing. Um, and, and we would, my wife and I went out to eat once a year. It was for our anniversary. And I'd look at people in our church going out to eat and talk about the green-eyed monster of envy. That was me. And we lived paycheck to paycheck. But you know what? In hindsight, we didn't need to live like that. There were other things we could have cut down in terms of our expenditures and started putting even $2 a paycheck back for future needs, $2 a paycheck for retirement, living beyond our means. And most of the things that we bought, you would look at and say, well, that's not, that's not unreasonable. Not unreasonable. And a lot of other people around us could afford it, but we couldn't. Living beyond our means. Are you living beyond your means? If you are, I can guarantee you that there's an element of greed exists in your life. Fourth, back to our First Corinthians passage. You file a lawsuit against somebody? I understand that if you're in a car accident or something, your insurer might file a, a lawsuit on your behalf against the other um, insurance company and you don't really have any recourse there. And I understand if you are a business person and somebody's left you holding the bag, um, not paid you what they owe you, and it's a sizable chunk that really, if you don't get back, you could, your business could go under. I understand some pragmatic things like that, but when we talk about personal lawsuits, uh, the principle is there in 1 Corinthians 6, don't, don't, go to, don't go to court against other believers. I When I hear Paul say, why not rather be wronged? I think about, okay, so would that mean, this is typically how we interpret this. That's just speaking about Christian to Christian. Would that mean it's okay for me to sue an unbeliever? And what message is being passed along if I do that? What message does that person that needs Jesus get by me filing a lawsuit with them, even though I was wronged. Paul says, why not rather be cheated? He says, if you go to law against a believer, you've already, you've already lost. Fifth, I'm never satisfied with my pay. I'm never, never satisfied with my possessions. There's always something else I want to acquire. There's always another salary level I want to get to. I'm not saying that we should not take a raise or that we shouldn't aspire to another position that has a higher salary, but the satisfaction, you understand what I'm saying? The satisfaction, am I satisfied right here where I'm at right now? Or do I have to have more? And I would say if I have to have more, then that's become my treasure. Number six, 
Are you, if you're an employer, are you a cheap employer? Miserly. You pay your employees just enough to keep them, but not enough to bless them. Can you figure the difference? You pay them just enough to keep them, but not enough to bless them. I'm always intrigued when I um, hear about somebody that's working for a, 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 a Christian employer, and they tell me, I, I can't believe how much they pay me. I'm like, wow. That's somebody who understands the gospel, number one. And number two, is, has a hedge against greed. And lastly, I give away far less than I could. Now, we're going to talk about this more in two weeks. One of the common thoughts that we have is the Bible teaches us to give away 10% of our income. And if you've been here, excuse me, any length of time, you know, we don't teach that necessarily. The tithe, which means the tenth from the Old Testament, is really only spoken of once in the New Testament, unless I've missed some spots. And the Old Testament tithe was, depending on how you interpret this passage and this passage, was either 13% rather than 10 total in a year's time, or 22% in that neighborhood. But the the approach the New Testament takes to giving is far more about um, what you can give. First Corinthians sixteen, uh, giving in proportion to your income. And if you make, I was just reading about a Christian artist the other day, music artist, not painting artist, makes two and a half million dollars a year. And my guess is that he's low on the spectrum of Christian musicians. Two and a half million dollars a year. Would you say that 10% is what he should give? Hmm. Um, I'd have a hard time saying that. Some of you know the story of Rick Warren. Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church out in California, planted that church almost 40 years ago now. Wrote the second best-selling book ever, only behind the Bible, Purpose Driven Life. He's making so much money from that book. But he paid back Saddleback all the salary he, they paid him over the years. He paid that all back and to this day lives on 10% of his income. Now it's a lot of money still, book royalties. But he gives away 90% of his income. And I look at that, I'm like, I, I bless you because you, you, you have established a very high, almost impenetrable hedge against greed by virtue of doing that. What about you? We give away less than we can or should. Now, I, nobody should diagnose this for you. I'm not going to diagnose it for you. You're not going to diagnose it for me. He said, diagnose what? Whether or not we have areas of greed in our lives. That's between you and the Lord. How do you determine that? Well, these are some practical ways to look from the outside in and draw conclusions. 
But at the end of the day, I think each of us should get alone with God and say, God, I, I really want to f- follow you in this area. I don't want money and possessions to have control of me and my, my heart. So what's true about me? And listen, if you're serious, you go to God with that question. He is more than able and more than ready to answer it. No, he's probably not going to write it in the sky for you. But if you ask the question, you simply watch and see what he does to reveal the nature of your heart. It might be through some circumstance. It might be through some comment from a friend. It might be through the scriptures itself. It might be in a morning when you're quietly meditating on a passage of scripture. And he speaks to your heart. All all I would encourage you to do is take him seriously. Take him seriously. And here's here's the thing. When God has us all, and someone said, if God has your wallet, he probably has everything else. And I think there's some truth to that. If God has your all, your joy will be full, as well as your worship be great and mighty. In other words, God is glorified and you are blessed. When God has us all, no reservations, and that he is our treasure, he's the source of our satisfaction, and he is the one in whom we find our ultimate security. And so as we pray this morning, I'm going to pray for you and for me as we seek God um, for him to give us the Dr. Jesus diagnosis on this. Let's bow our heads. Father, I think of um, many brothers and sisters here this morning who love you, um, who know Christ, and who really want to, um, who want to know, is this a problem in my life? And if it is, what are my next steps? And so I pray that as we get alone in our prayer closets, um, in our studies, maybe in our car sitting in a parking lot somewhere at the mall, as we uh, invite you to evaluate us, that you'd make the answer clear and plain to us. Um, Two things. One, guard us against pretend guilt. And to guard us against um, faithless deafness. Guard us against pretend guilt and against being faithless and deaf as you try to speak to us. And I pray that the net effect of this might be a freer walk with Christ. That the net effect of this might be that there's some folks... Um, on the other side of the world who are serving you faithfully but are struggling with having enough support that they might become fully supported because of the obedience of some children here um, that people in our neighborhoods who find themselves in the midst of a financial crisis might be blown away that their neighbors would turn to them and say I have a check here for you for $1,000. I hope that will help. And that um, 
bit by bit whatever hold or holds that our money and our possessions have on us uh, would increasingly lose those holds and that Jesus might become sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. We pray in his name. Amen.